If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter. We're still in chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 21. If you need a Bible, George is up front. He's got Bibles in his hands. So just raise your hand, and George will bring one right to your seat. Put that hand up high. and uh... Anybody else? We want George to get his exercise. If someone over here needs one, and one over there needs one, in that corner, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thank you, George. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21 this morning. Peter writes, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The title of my message this morning is The Fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to spend this time together in your word, knowing, Holy Spirit, that you have something to say to each one of us here in this room individually, Lord, and as a church corporately. And so, Lord, we just are praying that we can have open ears to receive all that you have for us this morning. I do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, Lord, would you especially touch their heart and help them see their need for you and turn to you today. Thank you also, Lord, for this time of communion that we can close with and what a blessing that will be as well. So we just ask your hand upon our time together that you would bless it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Fear. Most people are afraid of something. Spiders, the government, clowns, clowns in the government, (laughs) commitment. While some fears are valid, there's a few out there that are pretty hilarious. I've shared some of these before, but I found some new ones. Maybe you have some of these fears. This this one is arachobatophobia. It's a fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Sounds like an arachophobia. <laughs> How about this one? It's a fear of the color yellow, exanthophobia. How about this one? Antitidophobia, fear of being watched by a duck. Makes it worse if you have the fear of the color yellow because then you've got a yellow duck that's watching you. How about this one? Syngenesophobia. Fear of relatives. <laughs> now, if my relatives looked like that, I'd be very, very fearful. Xemnophobia, the fear of the great mole rat. Okay, that's legitimate. Um, last one. Hippopotamonostros equiptodilophobia. Fear of long words. 
Did you know that according to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Death death is number two. Does that sound right? This means the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. Think about that one for a minute. Too often we are afraid of the wrong things in life. We're living in a time and in a day and an age where there's a lot of fear-mongering going on in order to gain more and more control over our lives, especially when it comes to this whole COVID thing. Each new variant of COVID should be getting weaker and weaker, and yet the narrative is we should actually be more afraid. Wear more masks, wear more, get more boosters, get more vaccinated, then maybe, just maybe, you won't have this fear anymore. My belief, personal belief, is that as long as there is money to be made from the drug companies from COVID, the longer COVID will be around and the more they'll use fear-mongering to get the money. And yet over and over and over again, God's Word tells us when it comes to fearing things in this world, we're told not to. Isaiah 41, 13, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you, not as the world do I give you. Uh, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Should not be fearful. And yet here, Peter, in verse 17, tells us that we're to conduct ourselves throughout the time of our stay here in fear. So I thought we weren't supposed to have fear. I mean, this sounds like a con- contradiction. Actually, there's one type of fear that God tells us we are to have. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It was uh, Oswald Sanders who said, the only God-ordained fear is the fear of God. And if we fear Him, we don't have to fear anyone or anything else. I like that. Listen, the fear of which Peter speaks about here is not of that paralyzing dread or terror, but rather the kind of fear that you know, uh, knowing that you you have to give an account for your life. One of the best definitions, I think, for the fear of the Lord is a wholesome dread of displeasing Him. Let me repeat that. A wholesome dread of displeasing God. It's a love and a respect for God that that you want to honor Him so much that you don't want to do anything that would dishonor Him or displease Him. Yet everywhere we look today, it seems like there is no fear of God. In our community, in our politics, in the social agendas, there's no fear for God. In the churches across America... There's no fear of God. And if there's no fear of God, then there is no fear of hell. And if there's no fear of hell, then there's no fear of retribution and no reason not to sin. And that's why our country is in the shape that it's in. And why, sadly, many churches are in the shape they're in. And why our young people today are falling into such uh, immorality. Because there's no fear of God. Added to the fact that we're seeing believers abusing the grace of God. Oh, God will forgive me. I'll just get a divorce. Oh, uh, God will forgive me. I will just fill in the blank. It's an abuse of God's grace and no fear of the Lord. If they feared the Lord, then they would understand the writings of Proverbs 16.6, which says, In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. And by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, I want to give us five reasons why we should fear the Lord. First reason why we should fear God is because, number one, He is our Father. Look at verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here 
in fear. Peter says, if you call on the Father. The idea here is that if we call on the Father, He hears us and He will respond compassionately towards His children. I mean, think about it. Don't you love the fact that when we call on the Father, we don't get automatically declined? You know, I'll call my kids, you know, and, and, and it'll ring once, and then it'll go to the message. I'm going, you declined me. I, I know you declined me. You're talking to somebody else, but you declined me. When you call back, I'm going to decline you. Just be, No, I wouldn't do that. I mean, aren't you glad when we call upon the Heavenly Father, He doesn't decline us. He, he, he can answer all of us at once. It's a promise, Jeremiah 33, 3, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Any believer who calls on the name of the Lord can be assured that the Father has his full attention. Because as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, God is our Father and he's adopted us as his children through the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore we should reverence him, serve him and reverence him. And we should have a wholesome dread of displeasing him which just springs from a just view and a real love of the divine character of God. You see, as God, as our Father, there should be a family resemblance. We should take on some of the same characteristics as our Heavenly Father. And we looked at this last time, how we saw that God is holy. And Peter says that the Lord says to us, Be holy as I am holy. It's a command given to us to be set apart, to be different from this world, taking on the characteristics of of our Father, taking Him at His word. God is our Father, and as our Father, He knows exactly what's best for us, and so we should fear, we should be in awe, we should have reverence to our Father and show honor and respect by living for Him, by obeying His word. Now, also as God is our Father, we should fear the Lord because it's our Father that brings us discipline in our lives. Now, we don't always like that aspect about our Father, do we? We like... Oh, that God is love, that He loves us, and, and uh, you know, we like thinking about that. But when it comes to discipline, no, we don't like that. Maybe you, you remember being a, a child and being disciplined, and your dad or your mom said, this is for your own good. It's, it's going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And I've often thought when I heard that, why don't we just skip the whole thing and neither of us will get hurt. But <laughs> never helped my situation any. I always got disciplined. But listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 through 11 in the New Living Translation. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in His holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. I love that. Think about this. God loves you so much that in all of His goodness and all of His love, and all of his power, and all of his concern for the entire world at this time, some 7.6 billion people on the earth today, God takes time to come into your life and bring that rod of correction, his divine discipline, specifically when we need it. That's an amazing thought to me. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. 
You deserve trouble. Yes, my dear brethren, but there is not enough merit in all the Christians put together to deserve such a good thing as the loving rebuke of our Heavenly Father. Perhaps you can't see that. You cannot think that a trouble can come to you as a real blessing in the covenant. But I know that the rod of the covenant is as much, is much the gift of grace as the blood of the covenant. It's not a matter of merit. It is given to us because we need it. But I question whether we were ever so good as to deserve it. We were never able to get up to so high a standard as to deserve so rich, so gracious a providence as this covenant blessing, the rod of our chastening God. I mean, think about that. The blessing, knowing that God chastens us. In other words, we're so blessed after such a great God that He would take the time to care about disciplining little old you, little old me. The writer of Hebrews tells us, remember that God is treating you as His own children. I, I like that. What a blessing. But you know, in that blessing should come up the, the prompt us to some fear. But it, it's a kind of fear that, that, you know, when your mom would say, wait until your father gets home. It's, it's that kind of fear. You knew dad loved you, but you also knew that that rod would come down if he stepped far out of the line. I remember when, uh, when my kids were young, uh, Laura specifically, and maybe Chris a little bit, but uh, we would drive about 45 minutes down, we called it down the hill, to Cajon Pass in California to visit my in-laws. And so we'd be driving home, and uh, Laura would do something. I'd say, well, listen, when we get home, you're going to be disciplined. You know what? I know you, you, you did this. It's wrong. And so she tells me, she, they would pretend that they were asleep when we pulled into the driveway and think, Dad's going to forget. Dad won't remember. Dad's going to forget. And, and I'd pick her up, and, and she'd act all sleepy and say, hon, let's go get that spanking. And, and oh, you know, and what a mean dad. But listen. It's only because I loved her and because you love your children in the same way. You know, we should have a healthy respect and reverence and fear of not wanting to do anything that would displease our Heavenly Father and force His hand of discipline and correction in our life. It was John Wesley who once said, and I quote, Give me a hundred men who love God with all of their heart and fear nothing but sin, and I will move the world. I like that quote. This brings us to our second reason why we should fear God. Number one, He is our Father. Number two, He will judge the world. Again, verse 17, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work. In other words, we should fear the Lord because every person is going to be judged. Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed once unto man to die, and then comes the judgment. No one, no one will escape judgment. Every person will come to that day when they will stand all alone in a private interview with God. However, there are two different types of judgment that the Bible speaks of. There's number one, the great white throne judgment, and number two, the bema seat judgment. It's interesting that our society is quite open to hearing about God, provided we only talk about how much God loves us and takes care of us. But the moment we begin to talk about God, our Father, in terms of the one who is a judge, and suddenly people become very uncomfortable. And if you don't know Christ, you should be uncomfortable. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There should be fear. Not a wholesome fear of displeasing God, but the fearful, frightening thought that you will indeed stand before God and have to give an account for your life. And it's called the great white throne judgment. And it's a final judgment of God set out for all unbelievers. Listen to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 and 12 in the New Living Translation. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. 
I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Then verse 15 goes on to say, And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The final judgment of God should strike fear and terror within us because it is the most fearful, dreaded, and terrorizing experience imaginable. In fact, the human mind cannot even begin to pitch how awful and frightening it will be to be judged and cut off from God for all eternity. Listen, God is a holy God. He is just as much holy now as He was in the Old Testament. He hasn't changed. He hates sin today just as much as He did before the Lord Jesus died. And He must deal with it in the same way as He did before Jesus died. God has not changed His attitude about sin. Sin must be judged. But for us as Christians, as believers, sin was judged by when Christ died on the cross for our sins. So the only way to escape the judgment that is sure to come is by giving your life to Christ today, having your sins washed away, being born again. Or you can reject Christ today and have to pay for every single sin you've ever committed. The choice is yours. Lord says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, Today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessing and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make, Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You know, I've often said that God doesn't send anyone to hell. We send ourselves there. And it's true in that sense and that if we reject God's offer of salvation, we're, we've given ourselves a death sentence. But let me say this. God will send people to hell. He will. It's scriptural. He, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. My point is, is this. There should be a fear for a non-believer that if they continue to reject Jesus Christ, they will reap the consequences of their sin in hell, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of outer darkness, darkness so thick you can feel it, alone apart from God for all eternity. That should strike fear in every unbeliever. Judgment will come. I read a story uh, many years ago. The king of Hungary found himself depressed and unhappy, so he sent for his brother, a good-natured but rather indifferent type of prince. The king said to him, I'm a great sinner. I fear to meet God. The, but the prince only laughed at him. This didn't help the king's disposition. And he, though he was a believer, the king had gotten a glimpse of his guilt for the way he'd been living lately, and he seriously wanted help. Now, in those days, it was customary if the executioner sounded a trumpet before a man's door at any hour, it was a signal that the man inside was about to be led to his execution. While the king sent the executioner in the dead of night to his brother's door and sounded that faithful blast. While the prince realized with horror what was happening, quickly dressing, he stepped to the door and was seized by the executioner, dragged before the king's presence, trembling, pale, in agony of terror, he fell on his knees before his brother and begged to know how he had offended him. My brother, answered the king, if the sight of a human executioner is so terrible to you, shall not I, having grievously offended God, fear to be brought before the judgment seat of Christ? He wanted to open his eyes to think about what it means to stand before God one day. And we all will. Now again, for the believer, as I said, we'll face judgment when we die, but, but it'll be the judgment seat of Christ. It, it, it's a different judgment. It's called the Bema seat. Second Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So the judgment seat of Christ is only for believers. It's not a judgment uh, of the believer since Christ fully atoned for man's sin on the cross. The judgment is to see whether you're going to receive a reward or not. But notice that, that it, Paul says in Corinthians, we must all appear. Now he's writing to believers there. All believers will be judged the way we, that we may receive the things done in the body. We'll be judged the way we live this Christian life. How we've lived in these bodies down here. We'll go into the presence of the Lord and we'll be finished with these old bodies. Praise God. No more sickness, no more elder, uh, aches and pains, no more common cold. I mean, no more Omicron. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, new bodies. But God is going to determine how we live this life for Him and reward us accordingly. And we're going to have to report to Him. And I want to I have a good report. I don't know about you. I want to I have a good report for Him for the good that I, I possibly, all the good I can possibly can do. I, I had a conversation with my wife yesterday. I said, you know, the older we get, the more we're running out of time and the things that we could do for the Lord. And I, you know, I want to do more. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't I, I have so much more I can do for Christ in the time that I have left on the earth. Not because I want to get that better reward, but because of all that He has done for me. So Peter says on that day when we stand before the Lord in verse 17 that our Father is going to judge each man's work impartially. In other words, there's going to be no false profession when we stand before God in judgment. Our, our works will show what we believe and what we stood for in this life. There'll be no excuses at the judgment. Oh, Lord, I wanted to serve you more, but, but I just got so busy and I had this going on and I had that going on. Lord, I wanted to do this, but, but, but you know, I, I didn't know it would come to this. Listen to Proverbs twenty four twelve. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? Yes, he will. He knows. Can't make any excuses before God. That's why we need to have a healthy respect and reverence and fear of not doing anything that would displease our Father and doing all that we can to please Him. Why? Number one, because God is our Father. Number two, God will judge the world. Number three, third reason we should fear the Lord is because this world is not our home. Again, Paul tells us in verse, or rather Peter tells us in verse 17, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. I like that Peter kind of makes it sound like we're staying at a hotel, you know, and, and these are some guidelines to follow to enjoy your stay here. You know, welcome to the travel lodge. Throughout the time of your stay here, please conduct yourself in fear. And do they even have travel lodges anymore? I, I think I'm dating myself. Remember the sleepwalking bear? That was the, the travel lodge thing that, my point is, a hotel is meant to be a temporary place that you are staying. When you stay at a hotel, it's not meant to be permanent. And what Peter is saying is this place, this earth is not our home. We're just passing through. So knowing that we could be leaving at any time, that we are just pilgrim sojourners as we've read already in Peter's uh, epistle, we should live like it. Live in the fear of not wanting to do anything to displease the Father because in, at any moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we could be in his presence. And I've talked about this before. The last thing I want to be doing is arguing with my wife when the rapture hits. And that conversation is still coming out of my mouth. Hun, you were wrong in this situation, and I'm telling you, poof, standing before Jesus. What are you telling her, Tom? Uh, 
just how much I love her. No, you can't make excuses. I heard it all. <laughs> but we have this hope of, of heaven. We have the hope of Jesus coming in and get us. And because of that hope, John tells us in 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just to see his pure. We're going to want to live godly lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to want to live the, the remainder of time any of us have, we don't know, on this earth in the fear of displeasing the Lord. Fourth reason we should fear God. We should fear God because we've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a big one. Look at verse 18 and 19. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter wants us to understand that we should fear the Lord because we have been redeemed. Period. I mean, I mean, they're really, I mean, that's the best reason of all. Redemption is a, such a great word. It's a Greek word, apolytrosis, and it means to buy a slave out of slavery in order to set them free. Man has been sold into slavery by sin, and we're in the bondage of sin. And all we need to do is look around and we can see that it's true. Man is rotten, corrupt sinner. He cannot do anything else but sin because he's a slave to sin. But Christ came and paid the price for man's freedom to redeem mankind. That word redemption is, is also, was also a Greek term, a technical term for paying money to set free a prisoner of war. Now the fact that, that money would be used and spent in this transaction shows that the owner places value on the slave, places value on this prisoner of war. So the idea in the term redemption infers value. Simply put, you are precious to God. Your life is precious to God. That's why God redeemed you, bought you out of slavery of sin. Uh, that's why God is doing this work in your life. Not, Peter tells us we're not redeemed with corruptible things. Silver and gold cannot redeem you. There's no redemptive value when it comes to our salvation. People think, well, I'll just, you know, I'll buy my way to heaven. I'll look at all the money I gave to the poor, and I'll support this cause over there and that cause over there, and all my, all my good works, and, and, and uh, surely, I'd, you know, my good works are going to outweigh my bad, and God will I'll, I'll go to heaven. You know, Jesus said something quite strong to say about that in Matthew seven twenty one and 23. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, how are we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Why will he say that? Because they trusted in their good works for redemption. You know, the, the scientists have discovered what they say is the most precious substance in all the universe. It's very rare, and it's used only for research purposes. It's called anti-hydrogen. Scientists claim that this form of antimatter is the costliest material to make. 2006, Gerald, Dr. Gerald Smith of Positronics Research estimated it cost $250 million to produce 10 milligrams of antimatter, but NASA gave a figure that a gram of antihydrogen would cost $62.5 trillion. Now, if we go on ounces, you times ounces by 28, you get roughly $1,771 trillion per ounce. To wrap our little minds around that, that's 1771 with 12 zeros after that. Peter is saying that any substance found on this earth, no matter how valuable it is, cannot and will not redeem us. 
He's pointing out that silver and gold, compared to what Christ has done, it's worthless, it's valueless. Why? Because silver and gold eventually corrupts in time. Just look at an old set of silver, you know, you, you, silverware, silver things, plows you go to bring them out and, and it's all tarnished and discolored. We're not redeemed through corruptible things. Next he says in verse 18, we're not redeemed through aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Now this is something that you never would have heard Peter say earlier. Peter was a convinced conservative Orthodox Jew and proud of it and proud of the traditions of his forefathers. But sometimes the problem is you learn that your forefathers were wrong. No doubt in the Jewish mind, these were well-meaning men who introduced things into people's lives, traditions that, that were intended to draw people into a deeper relationship with God. But as the years went on and the descendants forgot that these traditions were supposed to be aiding their relationship with God, instead man began to worship the tradition instead of God. And soon everything became a ritual. Reality was replaced with ritual. And we can come to that point where we get so locked up in the ritual that we are then misled by them. You know what's going on? I've shared this story years ago about an old country church. Recently hired a new pastor. New pastor that noticed in the middle of a sermon, half the church on one side got up and moved to the right side and the other half got up and moved to the left side. And Sunday after Sunday, this kept, they kept trading places. Finally, the pastor had had enough and asked, why did they do such a thing? Well, well they all looked puzzled at each other and no one knew why they traded places either. <clears throat> they kept doing it. Finally, the, the pastor began to look into the old church records and found out that about 100 years ago, the church had one potbelly stove in the middle of the church. So the congregation would switch places halfway through the service to get warmed up on the other side. Well, the stove was long gone and now the church used electric heat and didn't even need to switch places. We probably do that with the air conditioning in the summer, which we should switch places like that. But we get so locked up into the ritual that we're misled by them. You know, the tradition that I grew up and taught that I'm redeemed, that I will go to heaven as long as I follow certain rituals and traditions. As long as I was baptized in the Roman church, Roman Catholic church, as long as I received my first confession, that is, I've gone to a priest and confessed my sins to him, as long as I receive that first communion and confirmation confirming that I'm a Roman Catholic church, then when I die, I will go to heaven. Perhaps with a stopover in purgatory. That's a place where the Roman Catholics teaches that men and women go immediately after death to be purged even further from their sins because they don't realize that Jesus took away all of our sins. But if you wanted, And if you wanted your loved ones to spend less time in purgatory, then you can donate money to the church. Yeah, it's an indulgence and, and it's called, and it will, you can buy a candle. You, they have small ones and they have bigger ones and you have to pay extra for the bigger ones, but that just means that, that they will pray more for, for your loved ones that are in purgatory so they can be released from that. Man, what a way to make some money. I don't want my loved ones to be suffering in, in hellfire purgatory, so, so here, I'm going to light this candle. You see, it's the traditions of men. And great many people have the idea that a man must do something to win God over to them. Listen, God is trying to win you over through what Jesus did, not what you can do. You and I deserve the judgment of God. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins shall die. God has never revoked that decree. God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift. 
Peter says we're not redeemed by gold or silver or the traditions of men. Even though those traditions may have started out with the best intentions, it's moved far and far away from, from the Lord. We're redeemed through one way and one way only, and it's not through silver, gold, or traditions of men. But, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Silver, gold, anti-hydrogen, traditions of men are nothing compared to the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That alone can save every sinner on this earth, if that sinner would just repent and put their faith and trust in the Savior. Peter knew oh so well what brings salvation to the soul. He knew what Jesus accomplished upon that cross for all of mankind. He knew that our redemption is through the precious blood of Christ. And I love this big old burly fisherman is using the word precious because it's so precious to him. If only there were more preachers in our day that understood this and we'd seen more lives changed for Christ. Peter preached the, the precious blood of Christ. Paul preached the blood of Christ. Sadly, today, the blood of Christ is not preached as it should be in churches. Where, you know, they're, they're preaching you know, self-help instead of self-denial. Jesus is my best friend and buddy, not Jesus is my God and Savior. You see, if Jesus is your Savior, that means that He saved you from something. He saved us from the penalty of our sins, from eternity in hell. How did He save us? Through His precious blood that was shed. But there are people that say, well, I don't want to go to church that talks about the blood of Jesus or my sin. I, it's so negative. <laughs> Listen, Hebrews 9.22. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. No matter what these postmodern preachers are preaching today, either your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus or you will spend eternity in hell separated from God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5.9, much more than that, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. Ephesians 1.7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Now understand what's being redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, what it means. It means He looks at you and He looks at me and says, you are so valuable to me that I gave my very life for you. You're that valuable to me. You know, when a young man walks into a jewelry store with his fiancée or wants to buy a diamond ring for her, it's always a mistake. Why? Well, because the salesman can spot you a mile away. And the first thing he's going to ask you, how much are you willing to spend on her? How much is she worth? Oh. Because that's a trick question because she's standing right there. Now he's thinking... This little cubic zirconian ring looks mighty fine. And she's thinking, it's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Now, he may feel that she's worth the Hope Diamond, most expensive diamond in the world, estimated worth $250 million with 45 carats of blue-hued gemstone. That's what she's worth. But he can't even come close to that. But Jesus, Jesus paid the ultimate price for you and me. That's what he thinks of you. That's what he thinks of me the very lifeblood of the Son of God, and God was willing to pay it, and Jesus was willing to go through it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's why Van Tavener, the one-time senator to the United States chaplain, said, uh, salvation is free, but it's not cheap. See, God gave His very best. 
So then, because we have redemption through the blood, because we know the cost involved in redeeming us, we should in turn walk in the fear of the Lord. I should not want to do anything that would displease my Lord and my Savior. Finally, number five, fifth reason why we should fear the Lord, He is the risen and glorified Christ. Look at verse 20 and 21. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through Him believe in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter keeps reminding us over and over again of the resurrection of Christ. Verse 21, who through him believed in God, who raised him from the dead. The word for believe is to have confidence. He says says that your faith and hope are in God. Have this confidence. You know, Peter's a great apostle of hope and hope rests upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ and upon the fact that we have a living Savior who can we, we can be confident that just as Jesus is risen, so too our hope is in Christ who will one day raise us up as well. So we're to fear the Lord, reverence the Lord, show honor and respect for Him while we wait for that day, which is coming soon, I believe. Conduct yourself through the time of your stay here in fear because He's our Father, because He will judge the world, because this world is not our home, because we've been redeemed through the blood of Christ, and because He is the risen and glorified Christ. Listen, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, if you place your faith and trust in Christ, then one day we will stand before God and we will be presented holy and blameless. Why? Because it all goes back to the blood of Christ. John tells us in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. From all sin. Listen, as we close and end of communion, know that sin is a direct defiling effect upon a person's life. It is the world's worst and most deadly disease because it's always fatal. But there's a fountain filled with blood that flows from the Savior's veins that no matter how great the offense, no matter how many nor how deeply seated our sins may be, the blood cries, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way, in a single moment, those who are black as hell become white as heaven. Through the application of the blood of sprinkling, for all sin disappears as soon as the blood falls on the conscience. That which the blood of bulls and of goats could not do, the blood of Jesus effectively accomplishes cleansing from all sin. Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So where are you at this morning? Have you been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb? Have you received God's grace? You know, we need to to, to get back to the truth of the great old hymn which Robert Lowry wrote in the 1800s. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you're not born again this morning, I encourage you that you come to Christ because that means you're not redeemed. That means because you're going to have to pay the penalty of your sin. So give your life to Christ today. Ask for that forgiveness. Be cleansed of all your sin. Now, from time to time, as believers, we can dirty ourselves. You know, we do things we know that are displeasing to God, and we need to come to Him, and we need to confess it. And I think there's no better time than at the community table to examine our lives, think about the cross, think what God has done for us, seek forgiveness if need be, and then uh, uh, and praise Him for all He's done for us. And so uh, let's end in a time of communion. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this time. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, opportunity that we have to, to just spend in communion, Lord. 
knowing what a great God you are. That you saved us, Lord, not on on corruptible things like silver and gold and the traditions of men, but through your precious blood that was shed upon the cross for each and every one of us. And I do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you to have their sin washed away, Lord, that they would come to you, they would repent, and they would find that forgiveness and hope in you. And Lord, for us as believers, I pray, Lord, that you would just open your, your Holy Spirit, have free rule of our heart, and show us, Lord, if there's any areas in our lives we need to confess to you. Lord, not just sins of commission, but sins of omission, things that, that you've laid on our hearts to do and we haven't done. Lord, whatever it may be, Lord, have free rule and reign of our hearts, cleanse us, forgive us, do that work in our lives. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.